This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, your host and the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. Today, my guest is Professor Dario Miccoli. Dario is currently Assistant Professor of Modern Hebrew and Jewish Studies at the Department of Asian and North African Studies at Kafoskari in Venice. And he's the author of A Sephar DC, Jewish Memories Across the Modern Mediterranean which has been published by Indiana University Press in 2022 and is available paperback, hardcover, and ebook edition. The book is very much a story of Jews from the southern shore of the Mediterranean who, between the late 1940s up to the 1950s and late into the mid-1960s, migrated from their country of origin to Europe, Israel, and beyond. First of all, Dario, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Dario, my first question is very much about uh, yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, your background and the origins of the book? Sure. Um, well, I should say that I um, have a background in Middle Eastern studies and languages, Hebrew and Arabic. And then I completed a PhD in history uh, that was dedicated um to the Jews of modern Egypt in the first half of the 20th century. And um, so I'm, I should, would say, uh, a little bit in between the field of uh, Middle Eastern studies, uh, broadly speaking, Jewish studies and, and history, um, on the other hand. And uh, so the, the book uh, that I've now published as a FRDC is, in a way, a mixture of all these uh, different uh, disciplines that I mentioned because um, it's not exactly a historical monograph. Uh, it's not a, a book that discusses just literature and literary sources. It's not an anthropological study, but in a way is a little bit of all these uh, things uh, together. And uh, the the origin of the book um, is, in fact, um, at the beginning, it was, a, in a sense, a way to continue uh, what I had started with my previous research, that is, as I mentioned, was on, on the Jews of Egypt. But for, for that, and um, for, for the book that then I, I published on, on that subject, I had stopped um, around the 1950s, so when the Jews uh, left, the, in, in that case, Egypt. Uh, with Asifadisi, I start from the 50s and 60s, and I arrive more or less uh, to to the contemporary age. 
uh, and also expanding uh, not just the Jews of Egypt, but expanding uh, the area of interest to the entire uh, southern shore of the Mediterranean, so Egypt and, uh, and North Africa in particular. Um, so um, it was, as, as I said, yeah, a way to, to, to look at the history and memory of the Jews of the Arab world uh, in, in a more contemporary sense and not just by, by focusing on, on historical sources. You're right saying that this is not a, a monograph dedicated to the history of Sephardi Jews. And in fact, this is a book about migrations, memoirs, and cultural heritage. And so, as you mentioned uh, just now, can you tell us a little bit more about your methodological approach and the sources that you have used for your book? And also, I was very curious um, about uh, concepts actually two, that you use at the very beginning of a book, space and memory. What do they mean for you and how important these are for the book? Yes, um, we, in terms of, uh, of sources, as I said, I've tried to, to combine different kinds of sources. Uh, for example, um, historical documents uh, taken from various archives in Israel and also in, in, in other uh, in other. Um, countries, um, together with literary sources, uh, so memoirs, autobiographies, as you said, uh, novels uh, written, especially I would say over the last 20, 25 years by Jews from the from North Africa and Egypt in, in different languages, um, mainly Hebrew, French, um, and Italian. Um, and then I also try to to add um, some oral interviews that I conducted uh, with members of these communities, um, again in in, this, in these three countries, Italy, France, and Israel, um, and lastly also um, what can be called perhaps um, a sort of a, a participant observation, uh, meaning that I uh, took part in the activities of uh, migrant associations or um, visited exhibitions and museums that dedicated. Uh, to these communities and analyzed uh, what I found uh, in, in these places in a sort of ethnographic uh, way. And so uh, for this reason, the, the methodological approach uh, is uh, a multidisciplinary one uh, that tries to, con to, to combine all these uh, things together. And um, I think that this is perhaps why, at least when I when I think about uh, about this book, I think it's uh, difficult to to put it in, in precisely in in one uh, dis disciplinary field. Uh, perhaps uh, I would say it is a, a, a research uh, that wants to be uh, in the field of Jewish studies, intended in a very broad uh, broad sense um, that takes advantage of uh, literary. Um, studies methodology as well as uh, more historical and historiographic uh, uh, approaches and uh, and again uh, ethnography um, as for uh, space and and memory of course these are two very important aspects and two very important um, categories that i utilize in in the book already in the title we we find uh, a, a geographical reference to to the mediterranean um, and also in terms of space, um, 
the, the subtitle is Jewish memories ac across the, Med the, the Mediterranean. Uh, so the Medi this Mediterranean space that I, that I focus on is uh, a space that extends both north and south of, uh, so in, both in Europe and in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and um, I think it was, it was important also to connect that to, to, to memory, um, not just because, as, as we know, memory has become very much uh, a crucial category in the last uh, decades uh, in the academia, but also in, in, for public opinion, if uh, more, more broadly. And I think in, in Jewish uh, history, Jewish studies uh, in particular, uh, memory, of course, has always been uh, very, very relevant. But again, in the last years, it's become more and more uh, central and more publications have been have been um, have been published on on this uh, on these subjects, and so um, space and memory surely are uh, two or two of the of the central um, categories that I that I focus on. And if I can add just one last thing, perhaps about space uh, and the Med this Mediterranean space, although perhaps we can then also go back to that later. It is a geographical space, so I utilize the category of space in a geographical sense, but also, and perhaps even more, in a, in a cultural and, and imaginative uh, sense. And, and this is something that I also did with, with my previous work on, on the Jews of Egypt and on their um, cultural and social imaginary. I want to ask you... Uh, couple of questions together about uh, terminology. Uh, first of all, in the beginning of, of the book, you use the uh, expression Sephardi Mediterranean. And I was wondering if you can tell us what you mean by that. And perhaps you can also tell us uh, a little bit more uh, for those that might not be very familiar with the uh, categories of Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, which often have been combined together, but Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews are not necessarily the same. Yes, well, for um, Sephardi Mediterranean is uh, with this expression. Um, I I identify this um, geocultural space, perhaps I should say, uh, where the Jews of North Africa and and the Middle East uh, lived, um, and a space that, from a his purely historical point of view, uh, has largely or almost entirely vanished. Uh, when the Jews of, of the region moved to Israel and, and to other places in the 50s and 60s. But at the same time, the Sephardi Mediterranean is also a, a very much uh, uh, persistent uh, space that continues to, to exist in the, in the mind of, of the migrants and of the generations of the second and third generation uh, after the migration. And so, um, and also, it is a category that again connects the two shores of the Mediterranean because this Sephardi Mediterranean is North Africa, Egypt, or um, the the Levant, but is also Italy, France, uh, and of course Israel, uh, all the the, the, the places and, and countries where these Jews uh, happened uh, to live or and where they live uh, today. And Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, so. In the, the first category, Sephardi, um, 
if we take it in a in the literal sense, in the literal meaning of uh, of the word, it refers to uh, what in Hebrew is uh, sefarad, that is more or less the uh, Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal of today, and from where the Jews uh, were expelled in the 15th century and moving to various places such as North Africa, but also Italy, uh, the Netherlands, uh, and so on. So the, the literal sense of Sephardi is uh, a Jew of Iberian origin. Um, then if we take it in a less, uh, in a less um, specific uh, way, uh, and this is also how I utilize it in the book, Sephardi nowadays, especially in English, but also in, in languages such as French, um, indicates a Jew from the Middle East and North Africa. So as it is a, a, um, the opposite of Ashkenazi, intending by Ashkenazi a Jew from Europe. Uh, although, as I said, uh, literally speaking, it, it is not 100% correct, but still it's become uh, very much uh, uh, common and, and popular also in, in the academic uh, discussion, I would say. And this is also why I, uh, why I utilize it uh, as such. Um, Mizrahi come, is a Hebrew word. So Mizrahi in Hebrew just means East. Mizrahi means uh, Oriental, Easterner, and uh, indicates, uh, again, a Jew from the, Arab, from the Arab world, or more, more broadly, uh, from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, in uh, in Israel today, uh, it's a category that has a, a long um, and complex uh, history. I initially, it was a quite a negative and derogatory term in the sixties and seventies, but then from the eighties, it's become more and more uh, common, uh, also uh, as a mean of self identification by Israelis of um, Middle Eastern and North African origin, as to call themselves as Mizrahim. Um, so in the book, I utilize both categories, the Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, um, in, um, in, in two different ways. By Sephardi, I uh, mean a Jew from North Africa and Egypt that in the 50s and 60s moved uh, to, uh, Euro to Europe or, or, for example, also to the US. Uh, but in the book, I focus, as I said, on Italy and France. And on the other hand, with Mizrahi, I indicate the Jew from the from North Africa and Egypt that moved to to Israel. So I utilize these two terms. And um, just uh, one last thing to to conclude this terminological um, uh, discussion, because there's no term that includes all these Jews um, together. It's very difficult, it's impossible to find just one category that identifies everything. We have to utilize long uh, expressions like Jews of the Middle East and North Africa. So I had to accommodate uh, and, and find a solution to that. And I know already some colleagues have have told me that they do not agree 100% with my choice, but and, 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 and that's fine. But I, as I said, I had to, to find a solution uh, to that. And I think this, is, this was, this seemed to me a, quite a practical one and also a solution that was not too difficult for readers to, to understand. Let me, let me say that uh, I may understand the criticism, but in fact, I also understand the necessity to be pragmatic and allow the readers to get a sense uh, about 
who are these people, their background, and at some point without uh, being dragged into endless debates about one identity or the other. So uh, I understand from an academic perspective, but I also appreciate the fact that you made a choice and it's a clear one and it's also explained very clearly. So I think that helps the readers of the book. Let me go to chapter one. So chapter one takes us uh, into the question of literary memoirs and memories. And I want to ask about uh, the Italian-Libyan experience of uh, being exiled, uh, very much because we are both Italians, and also because I want to add that for those who are interested, in the current edition of MasterChef Israel, one of the participants is an Italian-Libyan Jew. His name is Amos. And he's a very fascinating figure because he's actually bringing to the Israeli public uh, his identity as Italian-Libyan, combined together, and also he brought several times throughout the show his experience as an exile, what he brought with him. And I thought it was a fitting image of this chapter. So can you tell us a little bit more about the exiled experience? Yes. Um, well, if we, if we, if we take the, the, the case of, of the Jews of Libya, um, first of all, uh, we, we should say that the... Um, the, the case of uh, the Libyan Jewish case is perhaps one of the least known among the, the Jews of North Africa. Um, on, in, 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 on one hand, it is understandable because it was one of the smallest communities. Uh, so compared to the Moroccan, um, we, we can see, we can understand why perhaps there has been less interest or less research on, on this community. Um, but, but I think the, the, the demographic uh, Explanation is just uh, one side uh, of uh, of that. I think the the the, the most significant um, factor that led to uh, a, to, to this um, let's say uh, less consideration of the Jews of Libya compared to others also depended on the fact that the Jews of Libya uh, lived under Italian colonialism, which is in itself very much uh, unknown uh, even in Italy until until today. And um, so, if we if we look at the history of the Jews of Libya through the centuries, the Jews were a rather small community, but still one that was very much um, part of local societies in um, Tripolitania, in Cyrenaica, in cities like Tripoli, Benghazi, and. Um, so uh, the, the Italian colonialism, of course, led at least partially to a kind of Italianization of Libyan Jewish society. Um, and then we arrive uh, at the years where more or less my uh, interest in these, um, in these communities starts, that are the, the final years um, of the Jews of Libya in Libya and then their uh, migration uh, from the country. And as regards the, the migration from Libya, we have two great migratory waves uh, that occur in different um, periods. The first one, that was also the, the largest one, occurred around 1948. Um, and uh, in that case, we uh, see the majority of, of this migration going to the state of Israel. Um, and then uh, in, in only a, a very small uh, part to, to Italy. Then there was a, a second migration 
that occurred um, around 1967. And in, in that case, um, we uh, see a much larger number of Libyan Jews also moving to Italy. Um, so the first migration, as I said, 1948, so during the, the Palestine War, uh, whereas the second one, 1967, occurred at the time of the Six Days War. And uh, then in the period that followed the Six Days War, uh, between 67 and 69, when the, um, there was the, the coup d'etat of uh, Muammar Gaddafi and the fall of the Libyan monarchy. Um, in the book, I, I focus, when I talk about the Jews of Libya, I focus in, in particular about their literary production in Italian. Um, that is uh, very much uh, unknown, at least uh, outside of Italy, but even in, in Italy, I, I should say. And um, um, the, I talk about a few memoirs and, and autobiographies published in Italian over the last uh, years. Um, and then uh, in, in other sectors of, of, of the book, I instead uh, focus on museums and heritage centers by, by Libyan Jews. And perhaps one of the interesting thing of the, of the Libyan Jewish case is this, uh, the fact that they are uh, very, uh, a very much um, a virtually unknown community, especially in, in the context of the Jews of Italy. Uh, nowadays, a great portion of, for example, the Jews of Rome are of Libyan descent, but still today, um, the Libyan Jewish experience has not yet become um, a foundational component of, of Italian Jewish identity. And in this sense, there's still a lot to do to make um, these, um, this identity more visible and to understand the, the exiled experience in Italy, especially of, of this community and the difficulties that they faced uh, when they arrived um, and the difficult relations that uh, at least many of them had with uh, the Jews of Italy that were a, a, a rather different community uh, compared to, to them. Can I ask you something, just briefly, a, a quick overview also about the, um, the, the other experience that you talk about uh, in, in Chapter 1, which refers to Tunisian and Egyptian Jews? Yes, um, there, there's a... There's a lot of, uh, of of differences, but also of in of course of uh, of similarities between perhaps especially between uh, the Tunisian and and, and Libyan, um, and in fact, uh, just to add one thing before um, answering starting to answer the question, one of the one of the intriguing things I'd say uh, of uh, looking at all these juries together is seeing the. The great diversity uh, that that they uh, that they have, um, although in the end they were living in a relatively small um, uh, space like North Africa and, and Egypt, and of course a space that was very much uh, connected. Uh, but still, uh, if we look at all these juries individually, and even within each of these juries, the, the Jews of Libya, the Jews of Tunisia, or, and so on, we see. Uh, that we have many uh, even sub-communities and, and sub-groups. Um, so as regards the Jews of Tunisia, for example, um, first of all, if we look at the, the 20th late 19th and 20th century, Tunisia, of course, was not under um, Italian colonial rule, but French. Um, so 
they encountered a, a different kind of uh, of colonialism and of colonial um, identity. Uh, but aside from that, uh, if we go back uh, in in history, the Jews of Tunisia were traditionally divided into three big um, subgroups. The the ancient, the most ancient one, were the so-called Tuansa the autochthonous Jews of, of, let's say, real Tunisian and uh, Arab uh, uh, or Arabic-speaking um, community that was located in, in Tunis as well as in many other cities like Sous um, uh, and, uh, and many others. Then the second group was instead a kind of elite that was mainly sit- that mainly lived in the capital Tunis and this was um, was called the so-called Qarana, uh, that comes from uh, the, the Arabic for Livorno, the, so the, the Tuscan port city of Livorno, where from the um, from the modern uh, early modern period, um, a very important Sephardic community developed, and then from especially from the 18th century, many families uh, of merchants from Livorno started to migrate all over the Mediterranean, and particularly to Tunis. So the the Qarana were, in a way, a kind of more westernized, if we want to use this term, uh, elite, um, that especially uh, from the 19th and then 20th century with the Risorgimento and then also with the advent of fascism, became closer perhaps to Italy than, than to France. And then lastly, another uh, one uh, third and last group of Tunisian Jews were the Jews of the island of Jerba, um, that were another very ancient uh, community that still exists, although in in very small uh, numbers today. Um, Still nowadays, for example, um, the Jews of Jerba and many Jews of Tunisian origin uh, every year perform this pilgrimage to the Griba, that is one of the synagogues of, of Jerba, uh, that is an, a very important um, aspect of Tunisian Jewish uh, folklore. Um, so th- th- that said, so this is for the Jews of Tunisia in general. And in, another interesting thing of the Jews of Tunisia is, uh, again, compared, for example, to the Libyan, is their uh, migration trajectories. I said uh, before that the Jews of Libya went first uh, to Israel and then uh, mostly to, um, I mean, in total, most of the Jews of Libya ended up in, in Israel, but then in 67, quite a few also to Italy. Uh, in the case of Tunisia, um, the migration occurred around the 1950s, um, at the time of the, the end of the protectorate, and then again in 1967. Most of them went to Israel again, but we also have quite a significant community in France, of course, um, and less in other places like, for example, uh, North America, but it's mainly Israel and France. Um, Egypt, which is uh, perhaps my, I mean, not not perhaps, it's my my favorite as it's the the one, uh, the community on which I uh, wrote my PhD. Uh, So it's a one of a Jewish community to which I'm particularly um, attached, I, I should say. The Jews of Egypt are yet yet another um, example of this diversity I was talking about. Um, if we uh, think about the migration trajectories, as I was mentioning, um, it's different both from the Tunisian and Libyan because the, the Egyptians literally dispersed over uh, four or five different countries. Uh, 
a little bit less than half of the community, about around 35-40% of, of the Jews from Egypt went to Israel. But then uh, also many, many went to France. Um, some went, but not that many went to Great Britain. Um, then we also have um, quite significant Egyptian Jewish communities nowadays in the United States, but also, for example, in Australia uh, or in Brazil. And the, the, the Egyptian community was made of, on one side, again, an autochthonous community that was actually a, a very, very small component of the, the Jews of modern Egypt. The majority of Jews uh, of 20th century Egypt were uh, descended of migrants that had arrived in Egypt only in the fin des siècles, so between the, the 19th and 20th century, from all over the Mediterranean, but even in, in, in some cases, um, from uh, from Europe, and then this was by and large a, a middle class community, um, by and large an urban community. More than ninety percent of the Jews of Egypt lived either in in Cairo and Alexandria, and very very few in smaller uh, centers. So, just from the, these three examples, we again, as I said, see the, the great diversity of, of these uh, of these communities. Uh, that, that of course, in in many ways, mirrored the diversity of the region. Egypt features prominently in chapter two, but before talking about Egypt, I want to ask you about the title of chapter two, which I found fascinating, Intangible Heritages. What do you mean, and what is tangible, and what is intangible? Sure. Um, well, if we... If we look, if we think of uh, the field of heritage studies and um, th that is uh, the, the field uh, that uh, in a way uh, invented the, the categories of tangible and, and intangible heritage, um, by tangible heritage uh, or, for, or also, for example, if we take um, um, definitions like the, the definition that UNESCO gives of heritage, uh, that is well, perhaps one of the of the most important uh, definitions, uh, although one that has been discussed and critically discussed by, by some scholars. Um, if if we look at all that, tangible heritage means something that we can touch, that we can see. Um, uh, for example, a, a monument or uh, even a city or a building in in, in a city um, or uh, a, a book. Um, an object, uh, some kind of uh, a piece of art, uh, for example, in the case of the Jews of, um, I don't know, Morocco, um, a Jewish cemetery is in a way uh, an example of a tangible heritage or a synagogue or the objects inside a synagogue. A Torah scroll is, is a tangible, uh, is, 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 can be defined as tangible heritage. Intangible heritage uh, is uh, all uh, that remains uh, outside uh, outside this uh, definition. So um, memory, in a way, can be defined as as a form of intangible heritage, or um, also um, a song um, or a folklore. Um, a proverb that passes from one generation to the other. Um, Cooking um, a certain recipe in a specific way is part of uh, intangible heritage. Although, of course, when we start eating, 
this particular particular food it's become it becomes perhaps tangible um and so this is very very briefly a way to distinguish between tangible and intangible but in the book as you said i i utilize uh these two categories, but I also utilize uh, a sort of third category that is intangible, so in between uh, brackets, uh, tangible heritage, because when I was looking at these communities, first of all, I realized, as, as of course other scholars have done, that after the migration, the, the Jews of North Africa and Egypt, when they arrived in Israel or in Italy, in France, they arrived with very few objects. Uh, in some cases, they arrive with almost without um, anything from their countries of origin, and and therefore, to recon- in order to reconnect to to the land of birth, they had to uh, think of very much intangible aspects, uh, like as I said, memory or singing a song, uh, reciting a specific prayer in the tune of the Tunisian Jewish uh, liturgy, and so on. And um, all the synagogues remained uh, where they were. Uh, cemeteries, uh, of course, and tombs cannot can, cannot be transported um, in in other places. And and so it was uh, using this category of, of intangible was a way to um, to come to terms with communities of refugees, um, migrants that in this case, as in in all cases. Um, always um, find themselves with very little from the country of origin when they move to to another place. And um, this is very interesting also when we look at, uh, for example, today exhibitions about uh, these communities. Um, A very um, interesting example that I discuss in the book uh, is an exhibition that was dedicated about 10 years ago to the Jews of Algeria at the Musée du Judaïsme, the Jewish Museum of, of Paris, and precisely to address the lack of uh, tangible heritage that the Jewish Museum of Paris had about Algeria, the curators, months or a year before the exhibition, launched an, a public appeal to the Jews of Algeria living in France, asking them to give objects on loan in order to... Uh, to, to organize this exhibition, uh, as I said, 2012, that was the first major exhibition ever realized in France on the Jews of Algeria. And, uh, and so um, many people, for example, gave uh, photographs from their family albums, um, small objects that they had uh, taken from Algeria, um, like um, perhaps clo- a piece of clothing or uh, a book, uh, a diary, um, and, and so on. And, and this was, I think, a very intelligent way to to bypass this um, uh, lack or the scarcity of, of tangible heritage that, that these communities uh, have to deal with. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
I want to ask you a question about what might be an intangible uh, heritage. There's a very interesting section uh, in part of chapter two about the association of Egyptian Jews in Israel. That made me think about uh, the recent book by Hannah Ahmad, which I interviewed for the network uh, on Laila Murad, uh, who has become in time an icon for Egyptian Jews in Israel, even though she converted to Islam. But, uh, you know, many Egyptian Jews still uh, claim any kind of uh, link to her, whether they met her, knew her, or even uh, uh, to be a relative. Can you give us a sense of the memory of Egypt in Israel? If we if we think of of the Jews of Egypt that that live in Israel, um, that, that are not that many uh, compared, for example, to to Moroccan Jews uh, or even to, to Tunisian Jews, perhaps. Um, so, if we think of the of the Egyptian Jewish community in Israel today, the the memory of Egypt is, I generally speaking, I I, I would say a, a rather positive. Uh, one and this is something that is not entirely unique to to the to this case to the Egyptian Jewish case, but surely um, it's um, it's uh, a much more um, joyful memory tha- than what we see if we look at the Jews of uh, Yemen or um, Libya or uh, even to some extent uh, perhaps um, Iraq. Uh, I would say. And um, um, so the, the, the Jews of Egypt in Israel today um, remember Egypt as, as, a, as a cosmopolitan place, um, as, a, as a place where uh, they were living generally a much better and more prosperous life than what they then uh, had to face in Israel, uh, where there was, for many at least in the beginning, uh, a... Um, is shifting towards uh, from the middle class or upper even upper middle class to a lower uh, social strata uh, which is something that of course occurred also in many other cases but in the case of the Jews of Egypt was perhaps more uh, evident precisely because many uh, enjoyed quite a quite a good life in Cairo and Alexandria. Uh, so Egypt as a cosmopolitan place where uh, they had friends belonging to different religious communities, Muslims, uh, Copts, uh, Italians, Greeks, uh, where everybody spoke three or four languages, as opposed to Israel, where everybody, especially in the 50s and 60s, only spoke, well, only spoke, or let's say that where people were required to speak only Hebrew. Um, and um, um, so the Egypt that they like in a way under, quite understandably perhaps is the Egypt they remember uh, and the Egypt f- uh, of the monarchy and from before uh, Nasser then with Nasser of course a much more uh, difficult period began um, and then uh, when they look then at the Egypt of today the, the reflections on, on it are not so positive, but, but instead, um, a, when they compare the Egypt of today to that they, that they experience, um, they uh, generally uh, complain about the, uh, the, the differences and the negative differences that they see, um, and the fact that Egypt today uh, is uh, 
perceived from from their point of view as a much less uh, open-minded uh, society where uh, m- minority groups uh, do not have the place that they had uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and um, th- th- this is, of course, uh, something uh, interesting um, because even of, until before the 1950s, Egypt was actually, surely it was a, a place where the many different communities lived together. But again, it was also a place where many um, social and, and ethno-religious hierarchies also existed. Uh, but but here, of course, um, the, the perspective is uh, that of people um, like the Jews of Egypt, and especially the first generation men and women that nowadays are perhaps at least 70 or 80 years old that experience a, a rather uh, traumatic experience of, of migration and i have myself participated in uh, a few um, of the annual gathering uh, that egyptian jews have uh, generally in israel with people from israel but also from all over the world and um and 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 that that they were very moving experiences for me for me as well as as a researcher uh, to to see how uh, these people remember um, their youth in, in in Cairo and Alexandra. Of course, historiograph from a historiographic point of view, one could start saying that yes, but this is not true. Uh, it was not exactly like that. But I think. Um, that in, in a way, and this is what I've also tried in, in part to do in the book, uh, I think I think it is also important to, to listen to their voices without uh, saying if what they remember is right or, or, or wrong, but just uh, listening to what they remember and trying to understand why they remember it that way. I think in the future will be there will be the need to look at the question of owning the memory and how memory changes throughout time, but that's for other generations. Even though it connects with my next question, which is about digital diasporas. Now, this is obviously not a new idea, but I was wondering if you can tell us more about how you work with this idea of digital diasporas and also how Facebook and perhaps other social media may play a role in preserving uh, heritage and memory. Digital diaspora, of course, as you mentioned, um, by now there's there's a lot, quite a lot of research on on digital uh, history, digital diasporas, digital uh, uh, studies more uh, more generally. Um, so in in the book, I use the the category of digital diaspora by uh, and I, with with this category, I refer to. Jews from North Africa and Egypt that interact online, um, either through websites, um, websites uh, of migrant and heritage association, online forums or social networks, as you just said, like Facebook primarily. Um, but then when we start to look at their interaction on these uh, different um, on these different web pages and, and social media, we see that these these digital diasporas is not just made of uh, members of, for example, the Moroccan Jewish diaspora, um, strictly speaking. 
but uh, the digital dimension, the online dimension allows also many other people that do not exactly belong to the Moroccan Jewish community, that, that are not Moroccan Jews, uh, to take part in, in the discussion. So, for example, Moroccan Muslims, um, uh, anyone who's just perhaps interested, uh, that lived in Morocco and wants to uh, say something uh, on that, that met a Moroccan Jew and remembers something about that. Um, in, in the case of, um, of websites of Moroccan Jews, in the book I, I analyze in particular, this website that is called Dafina, uh, that is the name of one of the most uh, important dishes of the Moroccan Jewish um, cuisine. Um, on Dafina, the users are obviously, for the most part, Jews from Morocco, but also, as I said, Moroccan Muslims, um, Europeans, especially French, that lived in Morocco when Morocco was uh, a French colony. Um, and so the online dimension, in a way, allows for a, a, a broadening of, uh, of these diasporas. And also, on the other hand, it allows uh, perhaps, the, at least in some ways, the younger generations to take part in, in uh, the process of heritage and, and memory making. In, if we look at heritage associations like the one of, of the Jews from Egypt that I mentioned before, more than half uh, of the people that take part in their activities, like conferences, uh, annual gathering, are generally members of the first generation. So by now, old uh, old people. And the, so one of the things that, that, that we ask ourselves when we notice that is, how, um, what will happen when when this first generation will disappear, which is something that is already happening. It's not something that will happen in 50 years. And um, perhaps the, the, the digital uh, dimension is one, could be one of the answers. Um, so online interaction as as a way to to transmit in, in new ways uh, these uh, these identity uh, the history and memory of of this diaspora also of course thinking of of the fact that nowadays we always uh, connected in in some ways and so even distinguishing perhaps between digital and uh, so between online and offline like tangible and intangible will probably become less less relevant. No, I mean, it's already become not so relevant for, for many of us. So I don't think that the internet will be the solution also because in some cases, internet is a vector of not for um, more information uh, on these communities, but for the dissemination of uh, wrong uh, information, as we know. But it, it could be uh, one of the possible uh, solutions to 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 the to the to the vanishing of the first uh, of the first generation. You, you were saying something about Facebook and how, uh, particularly related to the, the newer generation, and it really made me think that that is probably the area as where a lot of historians will look at uh, later in the future, try to gather also how memory has been reshaped through social media. Facebook, Instagram, and all of the others, uh, because then that becomes the point and the place where we can gather and see how that transformation occurred. Obviously, this is not the only place. There's still uh, uh, memory transmitted orally, writings, uh, 
TV shows and so forth, but certainly in terms of like a digital space that's going to become very, very important for us. I, I want to move to chapter three because you, there you look at how North African and Egyptian Jewish diasporas have been or not included in the narratives of the country of immigration. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this. Can you elaborate more about, uh, you know, on this idea of being included or not in the, in the narratives? In 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 the in the narrative of the country of immigration, um, again, we we have to 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 distinguish between the 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 country where these communities uh, ended up uh, moving um, in the. I, I will start with the the case of Israel, that is the the most uh, important one in terms of number, and not only in terms of number. Um, so, in the case of Israel, if we look at the situation uh, from the fifties and sixties to to and then move to to the current uh, to, to today, we we can notice uh, surely um, a an improvement, I, I would say, in the acknowledgement of, uh, in the public acknowledgement of these communities and in uh, the inclusion of uh, their historical uh, narratives in uh, the national uh, Israeli narrative. Still today, of course, um, even in Israel, there's still a lot to do. Uh, but it is true that over the last 10, 20 years, also quite a lot has been done um, even by state institutions, uh, there have been attempts at in, uh, for including the North African and Middle Eastern Jewish past in school curriculum. Uh, for example, I'm thinking of the so-called Vaad um, Biton. It was a committee headed by the poet Erez Biton. Um, the, then there has been in 2014 the establishment of a Memorial Day that I uh, analyze in, in the book, um, that every 30th of November commemorates the um, migration or and expulsion, as, as it's called in the name of the, of the day, of the Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. Then, of course, we, we can discuss um, if the ways in which the Israeli state in this case has uh, included these narratives is uh, historically accurate or not um, and uh, as I said we can we can discuss about that but but in in any case I still think that uh, even though even this memorial day can be uh, analyzed and looked at different with various angles we can uh, discuss why it was um, founded at that particular moment, uh, in why it's always also related to the to the case of the Palestinians and and so on and so forth. But still, I think it's it's an important step forward for these communities and and for uh, becoming more visible on, on the public sphere. Uh, not to talk, of course, of more popular culture like music, literature. Um, television, where uh, we see uh, the Mizrahim, the Israelis of Middle Eastern and North African Jewish origin, more and more uh, over the last decades. Then, of course, if we move to other locations where the North African Jews moved, like France or Italy, the situation is uh, is different. Um, in the case of Italy, uh, is perhaps the one where the North African, uh, mainly Libyan, Jewish experience is, is less feasible. Again, 
the main reason is, of course, numbers. Uh, the, the Jews of Libya are a relatively small component of the Jews of Rome and Milan in particular. The Jews of Italy altogether are very few if we compare them to the in, in, with the total Italian population, about 30,000 people over uh, of Italian Jews with, in a country of more than 60 million people. Um, and so for this reason, the Libyan and more generally North African experience, Jewish experience in Italy is not very, uh, very visible, as I was mentioning. Uh, there has been some memoirs and novels published over the last few years, especially by Jews from Libya, but also Jews from Egypt and Tunisia that write in Italian. Uh, but still, uh, there's there's quite a lot uh, to do, even, I would say, uh, within the, the Jewish community it, itself. France is perhaps somewhere in between Italy and Israel, uh, the case of France is interesting because it's the country where, in Europe, um, where the largest number of Middle Eastern, well, of North African actually, more precisely, uh, Jews lived, especially um, from the 50s, especially Jews from Algeria, but also Morocco and Tunisia. And uh, there have been a lot of memoirs, books published in, in French in the last years, very important exhibitions on these topics. I mentioned already the one on the Jews of Algeria of 2012, but just uh, in 2021-22, there have been two major exhibitions in Paris on the Jews of the Arab world, one at the Institut du Monde Arabe and the other one at the National Museum of Immigration uh, of Paris. Uh, so in the case of France, the North African Jewish experience is, I would say, at least in 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 some ways included in, in, in the French Jewish experience. Also, when we think that after the Holocaust, the, the arrival of North African Jews in France um, had a very significant demographic impact. So nowadays, now I, I, I don't remember the, the exact figures, but a, a very large uh, portion of French Jewry is actually of North African, uh, or at least partly of North African, Origin, as opposed to the case of Italy, where we're talking of of very small, uh, of much smaller uh, portion. And of course, if I can add one last thing, it also depends on the the inclusion of these narratives in the country of immigration. Also depends, and this is also another thing that I try to address in the book. It depends on how migrants, more generally, are included uh, in public discussions. Uh, in Italy, as uh, we both know, migrants are a relatively recent addition to Italian society and one that is very much um, understudied and, and not, not very deeply discussed uh, at, in, at a public level, if, if not in very simplistic ways very often. The case of France is, is a very different one because of the diff very different history that, um, that, that this country had, uh, the impact of the Algerian war, um, uh, and so on. And I guess also this connects with the question of how to have a healthy debate about the colonial past, uh, which in Italy never really took place, and it's still at the very margin of both scholarly and certainly public debates. Perhaps other countries had a better experience, so it's already hard to get to touch upon the question of uh, the colonial past, uh, at least uh, the, the question of uh, 
in, in our case, uh, the discussion about the, the Jewish component of, of that. I want to ask you something about the Holocaust because you just mentioned that as we reach the end of our conversation. Now, the historical experience of North African and Egyptian Jews was rather different. Occasionally, it was very similar from European Jews, but in general, certainly Mizraich, Mizakri experience of, of the Holocaust is very different. And I was wondering how the narratives of the Holocaust have become part of the history of these Jewish communities. It, it, it has become, especially in the last years, uh, a, in some cases, an important um, aspect of their uh, of their narrative and of their memory, if not if not of their history. Um, from a historical point of view, the the vast majority, of course, of the Jews of North Africa and of the Middle East did not experience the Holocaust. The, the only um, North African Jews that experienced the Holocaust directly were either Jews from North Africa that were living in Europe before the, uh, I mean, when, when the Second World War broke out, for example, in France, but also Italy, uh, and therefore were deported from Europe as the, the rest of the Jews that, that, that lived in Europe, um, or uh, small components of, for example, the Jews from Libya. In, in the case of Libya, we have a few hundred Libyan Jews that were deported from Benghazi to Bergen-Belsen. Um, then there were um, a number of um, North African Jews that were interned in prison camps or labor camps in the Maghreb itself, in Tunisia, in Egypt, um, in, in Morocco and in Libya as well. Um, uh, or so, so in, there was in a way a connection, if not with the Holocaust, with the Second World War. Uh, for example, the Jews of Tunisia were for about six months uh, under direct Nazi occupation um, during the Second World War, uh, the only country in, in North Africa. Um, or the Jews of, for example, Algeria that had been French citizens since 1870 uh, when the Vichy regime uh, began and um, uh, promulgated the anti-Jewish laws, uh, were stripped of French citizenship, and therefore uh, even those who were still living in Algeria um, had this uh, traumatic experience of not being French citizens anymore. Or, uh, numerous clauses was introduced for universities and certain uh, professions and, and so on. So there were, in some cases, uh, anti-Jewish measures that depended, uh, for example, to uh, Vichy France, as I, as I just said. Um, but apart from that, what we see uh, today is um, the assimilation, in some cases, uh, to the Holocaust, uh, the assimilation of events, uh, of episodes of anti-Jewish violence that occurred in the 40s and 50s or 60s, uh, like, for example, the 1967 anti-Jewish riots of Benghazi and Tripoli, um, or the 1948 um, anti-Jewish uh, riots of Cairo, um, connecting all that to the Holocaust and in, by, for example, the press or members of certain North African Jewish associations, uh, remembering all that as part of a North African or Mizrahi Middle Eastern Jewish Holocaust. Um, and this is, of course, historically speaking, inaccurate, 
but it relates very much to the centrality that the Holocaust has acquired in Israeli national identity on one side. So when we're in this case, we're talking about those who live in Israel, but even for those who live in the diaspora, again, the centrality of the Holocaust as a, a, an unavoidable uh, category of Jewish history and memory. So even those who those Jews who did not experience the Holocaust are in a way um, almost obliged, one could say, to, to address this issue and also therefore try to come to terms with different episodes of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish violence through the filter of the Holocaust that has become a kind of blueprint for many other um, experiences of violence, of genocide, uh, even beyond the Jewish case. Now, even when we uh, talk of, we talk about, for example, uh, the Rwandan genocide, no, this is something that m- many scholars have also addressed, this multidirectionality of Holocaust memory, as Michael Rothberg uh, has, has uh, called it. And so um, the, the Holocaust, uh, in, in the book I talk about, for example, movies that address the issue of Holocaust uh, in North Africa. I talk about a movie on Tunisian Jews in the 1940s, and then about the, the case of Libya, um, and a writer that published a book, uh, Yossi Sukari, um, that is a book that is called Benghazi Bergen Belsen, that is a novel based on his grandmother' experience in, in Bergen-Belsen. Um, so, uh, it's I think it's it's um, important. You know, it, it was important for me to to address also this aspect in in, in my study um, to to understand again uh, not if and how the Holocaust impacted of these communities. As the answer to that is quite simple, it had a rather small impact, or at least only for, for some, uh, for parts of these communities. But nonetheless, uh, what I wanted to, to show is the importance that the memory, as I said, more than the history of this event uh, has acquired and how it, it has been re-narrated in, in different ways um, in, in, in the present. I have a couple more questions, and one perhaps has a very easy answer, but I I was curious about the title of this chapter, uh, which is uh, Unfinished Present. Why unfinished? It is unfinished because, as I I write, um, if we look at the the Jews of North Africa, the the Jews of the, the Arab world, we we can if we look at them today we can see that of of course the, the, their past as the word says has passed but at the same time uh, as uh, as a as a historian that worked on on Vichy France entitled his book it is a past that does not pass so the past has passed but at the same time is still very much present um, in their uh, in their lives and also in that of the of the following generations. But on the other hand, the future, at least the future that the first generation had envisioned when b- before they migrated, so when they were still living in their countries of birth, that future never materialized because they left Egypt for Israel, they left Morocco for France and so on. So th- th- this future always remains uh, a kind of hope 
uh, for, uh, for, for something that we know it's, it's very unlikely to ever materialize. So between this past that, that does not pass and, and this future that never arrives, what remains, I argue, is a kind of eternal present that continues, uh, uh, well, I don't want to say forever, but that, that continues at least for today. And, and this is something very specific to these communities, but also something that it very much involves all of us. Um, to mention another French historian, François Hartog, has called a very famous book of, uh, of him, uh, Régime d'Histricité. In, in this book, he talks about this presentism that in which we, we, all, uh, we all live. So this, uh, this obsession for the past, this obsession for the future, this nostalgia for a past that perhaps almost certainly was not as we remember. And then what remains again is, is this present in which we live in uh, that has become the almost the only dimension through which we look at the both future and past. Again, just one last thing, if, if we go back to the Holocaust and how, for example, experiences of anti-Jewish violence is uh, re-narrated uh, through the Holocaust, it's being done from this presentist perspective and not in a more historical um, point of view. We we look at, at, which is of course obvious, as we cannot look at the past if not through the present, but still it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing to, to underline. One more question. Is there anything that we didn't discuss throughout the interview, but that you would like to highlight or point out? Um, well, perhaps just just a few, one one very last thing that I that I partly already mentioned before um, is that to, to me, um, perhaps more than 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 my previous book on the Jews of Egypt. Uh, writing, but, but even more than writing, conducting research for, for this book, um, collecting sources, but especially meeting people and talking to people, visiting museums, um, taking part in the activities of heritage associations in Paris or Tel Aviv, really was a, a, a very uh, emotional experience. And I really, um, me, uh, first of all, I met uh, many interesting people. Um, I made new friends, uh, but also it was a, a very moving uh, experience that allowed me to understand uh, the beauty in a way. Uh, now, I don't want to end in, in, in a nostalgic way, but it, nonetheless, it allowed me to see really the beauty of this North Africa and of this Middle East that uh, for sure, in part, we, we have lost. And of, of the, the beauty of the Sephardi Mediterranean that has perhaps vanished. And the end of the book um, tries to, to, to say that perhaps, yes, it has vanished, but maybe in different ways uh, it can return. In, in, in new ways it can return. So the Sephardi Mediterranean that the Jews of Egypt and North Africa remember has disappeared, but this doesn't mean that their historical experience, that their memory cannot be helpful for constructing uh, a more harmonious and less divisive uh, Mediterranean even today. This was Dario Miccoli, author of A Sephardi Sea, 
Jewish Memories Across the Modern Mediterranean, published by Indiana University Press in 2022, available paperback, ebook, and hardcover. Dario, thank you so much. Thank you.